Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? It's a question designed to filter ideas based on principles and purposes. And we probably ask this question a lot more than we realize. And at the same time, we probably need to be asking that question more than we do. So yesterday was our 11-year marriage anniversary. Yay. Um, about a month ago, we officially celebrated it. And yesterday, we wanted to celebrate it again. But it was more like a, a, a regular date night. Now, I could have been super creative and taken Melanie to you know, go see a movie. But that's where this question helps us, right? It helped me. Why are we doing this in the first place? As in the date. Why are we doing the date in the first place? Well, because it's our anniversary. And then that helps me ask the next question. Next question well, what are my purposes and principles that inform the way that I understand anniversaries? It's a good question. And, you know, if my, my highest priority, if I get two hours to spend with my wife on our 11-year marriage anniversary, uh, my highest priority is not necessarily to relax with my wife. My highest priority is not necessarily to relax with my wife. That's a purpose. That's a priority. I want to relate to her. Um, and some of you guys can understand, you know, if, if you have no children, well, you know, you might think, well, we could go and do anything we want to. We can go do something fun, something we've never done before. But, you know, if you have four children and multiple jobs and, you know, you're homeschooling, then the goal of a date night becomes very different. It becomes the goal is communicating as human beings <laughs> often do when they have time. So, therefore, a movie, while we both would have fun, and we both do that sometimes on uh, date nights, you know, it, it didn't make the cut. It didn't make the cut. So we basically ended up going out to eat at a restaurant. You know, we tried something, um, a restaurant that we'd been to only once, so we went there to try new foods. And most importantly, it gave it provided the opportunity where we could relate with one another. So yes, it was relaxing, but ultimately there, the purpose, priority, there we're thinking relational. Why are we doing this? Today as we continue our series in the book of 1 Timothy, the series is entitled The Deliberate Church. We see Paul reminding a young pastor and a young church about the why God wants them to do church. He holds out to them the why God wants them to do church in this certain particular way. And so far in the series, we've looked at from chapter one, how and why they should be gospel centered. How they should keep the gospel, make sure the gospel is uh, enjoys its primary, its center place in the church. In chapter 2, Paul there, he deals with right order or right behavior. He looks at public worship, how men and women, how their godliness is exercised in worship. And then he also looked at church structure. And then in chapter 3, Paul continues to deal with right structure as well as right character. So he says, look, okay, if you're going to get leaders in the church, elders and deacons, make sure you get men of character. And for the deacons or deaconesses, women of character that fit the task. Servants of the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. So there's a whole lot of material on behavior. Three chapters of material on behavior, how the church is supposed to act. But today we're reminded that behavior is not ultimate. So we're asking, Paul helps us ask this why question here by the verses that we look at today. And we see that behavior and order is so important 
because it serves the mission of the church. Behavior or order is so important because it serves the mission of the church. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14. And we're going to read through chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, to give you a little bit of background, this is written by the Apostle Paul to, again, his disciple and a young pastor named Timothy. Timothy was charged to take care of the church until Paul returned. He's basically a pastor. He is a pastor. In 2 Timothy, there, his responsibility really is just to preach the word and shepherd the church. But here in 1 Timothy, uh, we see that Paul had gone on. He had left, continued in missionary journey. And he encourages Timothy, while, t- while Paul is away, to care for the church. To bring the church order. To preach the gospel. Because there were false teachers who were rising up in their ranks and teaching things that were not true. They were leading the church astray, actually. So you look there in 3.14. And here we have the purpose for why Paul is writing these things. The whole, his whole letter. He says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that there's a purpose statement so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So main idea again, order in the church, behavior in the church, it serves the mission of the church. It's clear that he addresses behavior, you know, what we've been looking at over the last number of weeks there in 14. I write to you so that you may know how one ought to behave, how one ought to behave. And just because behavior is not ultimate does not make it unimportant. It's actually really important. So I'm sure you guys know if you're visiting with us and you aren't a Christian, I'm sure you know that Christians are supposed to be known by their behavior. So Jesus speaks about looking at our behavior because our behavior really reveals what's going on in our heart. That's what he goes after. He goes after hearts. Yes, behavior, but primarily hearts that know and love him. He does not want us just simply going through the motions. He wants hearts. And here, the same thing goes on. God doesn't want us simply going through the motions of right behavior. He calls us actually to be on board with the mission. Right behavior serves the mission of the church. Order in the church serves the mission in the church. So then we got to ask the question, well, what exactly is the mission of the church? And that's what our passage addresses this morning. So Paul asks that why question. Why are we doing this? We've already talked about how the false teachers aren't supposed to be teaching certain things. Well, why? He says Timothy is supposed to be teaching the gospel. Well, why? Elders are supposed to be men who preach the gospel and who live up to a certain uh, standard. Elders Elders are supposed to be men of certain qualifications and characteristics. And so are the deacons. Well, why? This brings us to the mission of God's church. This is point number one. The mission of the church is to uphold God's truth. Simple, very plain. The church's mission is to uphold 
God's truth. Did you notice there in verse 14 that uh, in the conversation about behavior, Paul is concerned with behavior in a particular location. Behavior in a particular location in the household of God, it says there in verse 14. I write to you so that, there's a purpose statement, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So he's intent on us as Christians knowing where it is that we are supposed to behave rightly. Of course, we're supposed to behave rightly in the world. But here he's narrowing down his focus on what is this organism that he calls church. Notice there are three different descriptions there for church. All of them teach us about this this group. I mean, we gather together as a church. The church is not a building. When we gather, that is the church. And he wants us to know more about who we are. Because it's in this place that we're supposed to be concerned with right behavior. And that's exactly why Paul's writing. Look there, the first descriptor. The church is God's household. Now, throughout Scripture, God calls, he refers to the church as a household or, let's say, a house. Uh, and naturally so. so. So when we are adopted, we are adopted into God's family. Where we have, you know, God is our great and marvelous and perfect father. Or we can think about us as literally a building, not this building, but each one of us are sort of brought together onto the foundation, the cornerstone that is Christ. So in that sense, we are, we are all stones in a building or bricks in a building. And there the emphasis would be on ownership. So God owns the house. He's the master of the house. And he's told us how exactly he wants us structured. What should be our, our priorities and our purposes? What kind of character to look for our leaders and who should be our leaders and, and what kind of leadership should we have? So then he just says, the church is God's household. It's not man's house, by the way. It's God's house. So if we're going to talk about behavior or leadership positions and qualifications and characteristics, this is not us talking. This is God saying, this is what I want for my household. You guys are stewards of it. And this is what I'd like. This is God's household. Second, he says that this is the church of the living God. This is the church of the living God. And in the New Testament or even in the Old Testament, when God is spoken as the God of God who lives, it's over and against those gods who do nothing. The gods, they don't do anything. They don't speak. They don't call things into existence. They don't determine the future. They don't even know. They're not even alive. But God is the one true living God. In the book of Thessalonians, chapter 1, Paul says that those Thessalonian Christians were the ones who turned away from idols that don't do anything, they're not alive, to the one and true living God. Now, this is a big deal. Some of us, you know, as we read this, this uh, section, I write to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, God's household, the church of the living God. You know, we kind of take it for granted. We understand this thing. We are God's house. But when you keep in mind that he's writing to a pluralistic society that says, hey, it's cool if you believe your God, I'm just going to go, over, uh, go ahead and believe my God. Well, then it becomes a bigger deal, actually. He's basically excluding everything else. He says, this is who you are. You are God's house. And God, the only living God, is your God. Ephesus was actually very pluralistic as well it's very much like our city and ephesus is where this church was written or sorry where this church was located and paul is sending this letter to the church in ephesus it was a pagan city 
They were known for their temples dedicated to the Roman emperor, temples dedicated to their own gods. One of their temples was world famous. And this was a temple of the goddess Artemis, or the Roman equivalent would be Diana, the temple of Diana. Same thing as temple of Artemis. And the thing was massive. You know, you can go and Google pictures and whatnot. Um, and it was actually one of the seven wonders of the world until it was destroyed around 400 AD. I mean, the thing was existed in like, you know, a number of centuries before AD. It was existed in the BC. It would get destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt. And then eventually it came to be known as the temple dedicated to this goddess named Artemis. One first, his, one first century BC historian wrote, he's going around looking at these marvelous things. And he says, I have seen the walls and hanging gardens of ancient Babylon. I've seen the statue of, Olymp- of the Olympian, Zeus. I've seen the, the, the Colossus of Rhodes, the mighty work of the high pyramids and the tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the temple at Ephesus rising in the clouds, all these other wonders were put in the shade. So you get this idea, right? I mean, these, he's writing to a church uh, that existed in that city that was known for this massive temple dedicated to this goddess. And you can imagine that some of, uh, some of, its, uh, some of the church's members were probably former worshipers of this goddess Rome, uh, Artemis. They go to the temple. They know what it is. They know how it shoots up into the sky. They know about its, its structure. Um, and yet he says here that you are the house of the living God. So they're all recalling the house of this other God. This God who doesn't live. Um, so it gives us a feel in terms of this quote here where this guy is saying that all the other wonders were put in the shade in relation to this temple of Artemis. So Paul is writing to that culture. So when he writes saying, you are the household of God, the church of the living God, he's basically saying, look, forget that house. You are the household of God. There's no other gods. You are the church of the living God because all others are dead. And you, church, I want you to go on worshiping him. So it's the house of God. It's the house of the living God. And then he says, third, you are a pillar of and buttress of truth that is what the church is a pillar and buttress of truth so you see here he's narrowing our focus into what this organism is that he calls church as he's saying look behave right in this organism that he calls church you are a pillar and buttress of truth the temple of artemis it had beautiful columns 127 of them 60 feet high one one uh, historian says and all of them were upholding the roof in which Arte, under which Artemis dwelt. So you can see this application here is he's calling this group of people uh, a pillar and buttress of truth. You are a pillar and buttress of God's truth. You and the church at large are the God-made world wonder. Designed by the architect to display God's splendor and uphold God's truth in the world. And he says that is the church's mission foisting god's truth like pillar like a pillar foisting god's truth up high so that he would get the glory that he deserves a pillar and buttress of truth you guys know what pillars are it's pretty standard it's like a column um the next word is a little bit harder to translate it can be translated the esv translated buttress um it's basically a perpendicular structure to the main wall that upholds the the you know the main walls 
Uh, perhaps the most famous buttresses are those of Notre Dame, so the flying buttresses. If you've been to Paris, you've seen this beautiful, magnificent structure. And you have the main building, and these flying buttresses um, are not uh, – I mean they are attached to the main wall, uh, but they, they appear to be floating because here you have the main walls, and then you have the buttresses outside of them. And so they're kind of floating, making an arse. Beautiful structures. But they're designed to hold up the main thing. So he's saying there, that is the church. The church foists God's truth up high, and the church supports God's truth. As we apply this to our lives then, the task of the church is to be a conveyor of God's truth. So taking what we have here in Scripture... And then making it known to God's people in the world. Um, that's our mission, to support God's truth. Now keep in mind here, it is not to give truth its meaning. It is not to give truth its meaning. It already has meaning, so our mission really is to give the meaning to God's people. And there are some actually that understand here when it says the church is a pillar and support of truth. You could, some people have translated it foundation some people, when they look at that, the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. They conclude then that the nature of the church is to define and give authority to the truth. The Roman Catholic Church would say that. The, the nature of the church is to define and give authority to the church. Or, sorry, to the truth. And so one way that this gets worked out is that they claim that when the Pope speaks on theological matters, he speaks infallibly. Um, in other words, no error. But the church, according to scripture, never defines truth nor gives authority to truth. It already has been defined for us. And so when we receive it, we then give it. Uh, and Galatians 1 makes this point there. Paul says, uh, he's writing to this Galatian church who were swerving from the truth. They were adding things on, look, basically saying that we can be saved by faith plus works. And Paul says, no, that's not the gospel. He says, if an apostle, even someone like myself... Even if an apostle or an angelic being from heaven, if that were possible, were to come down and preach something different than what you've already received, let him be cursed. The question is, well, why cursed? It's because if he were preaching something different, if they were to receive something different from that teacher, um, then that teacher would be messing with God's authoritative truth. Already defined, already has authority because it comes from God's person himself. So here, when we see, when we read that the church is to be a pillar and support of truth or buttress of truth or foundation, foundation of truth, a better way to understand this is here we have God defining the mission of the church, not the nature of the church, but the mission of the church. The mission is to uphold the truth. That's what a pillar, a buttress of support does. And while the church is built on the truth, of course, you know, the church is built on the apostles who preach the truth, it says that in Ephesians the church also to is to uphold it. So here Paul's talking about order. He's talking about behavior in the previous chapters. He's talking about behavior in God's house whose mission is to uphold the truth. Whether we be talking about elders, whether we be talking about deacons, uh, whether we talk, be talking about being gospel-centered, all of that goes to foisting up God's truth and giving him the glory that he deserves. Uh, this brings us to the second point. Well, if we're supposed to uphold the truth, what exactly is the truth? Point number two, the church's confession. So we looked at the church's mission. Now we look at the church's confession. 
that is the gospel. In verse 16, he uphold, he unfolds the truth of Christ by using what was most likely a known hymn or a poem. Pretty interesting if you just look at the history. I mean, these Christians were already sort of uh, having their own hymns being written or poems that summarize great and wonderful truths. This here in verse 16 is one of them. And what he's doing here is he's referring to the truths of, of Christ as a mystery. It says there in 16, great indeed we confess the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on and unfolds what the mystery of godliness is. This mystery, as I mentioned last week, is a, a way of referring to the plan of salvation that God had designed before time, now unfolded to the people in Christ. So it's God's plan of salvation, previously, uh, previously shaded, but now made known to the people. So mystery does not mean to, does not mean something that has been kept back presently. Paul's thinking, we know the mystery. The mystery is Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he calls it the mystery of faith. So there Christ was not there Christ is not known, but then this mystery has been made known. And it's called the mystery of faith because it stimulates faith in faith's object, namely Christ. Here he says it's a mystery of godliness because truth stimulates our worship. It stimulates our humility and uh, it stimulates our reverence before God. But why is it great indeed? Do you notice there he says great indeed after he talks about the nature of the church upholding the truth of God. And then all of a sudden he comes in with this great indeed we confess is the truth, the mystery of godliness. I find that interesting. This great indeed almost has the, you know, you better believe it. This is serious here. This is great. And I think Luke's, Luke uh, writes in Acts 19, what he writes there in Acts 19 is helpful for us. Acts 19 tells the story of when Paul and his friends were in Ephesus preaching the gospel. And the gospel was starting to take effect there. And so people started following the one true and living God. But keep in mind, right, they are in Ephesus where there is the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana. There's pagan worship there. So what do you think people do when people who used to make their living, let's say, off of making idols, what happens when all of their clients start believing in the gospel? Their very economy sort of gets disrupted, right? It gets turned on its head. And so what a silversmith does there in Acts chapter 19 is he recognizes that his business is at stake. The economy is going to change and that's going to affect him. And he says, we can't let that happen. So he gathers all the trade makers, all the folks who, are, who take part in making the idols as well. And he says, our business is at stake. You know, let's basically start a riot. And so what you see happen is people start gathering and rioting and they're chanting for hours. Great is Artemis. And, you know, they're, they're going after Paul. They're going after their friends. So here are the pagans. They are upholding the truth of so, the so-called truth of Artemis. Paul writes directly to the church. He says, look, you uphold the truth of God. And so he says, great indeed. We confess is the mystery of godliness. And I think I think he has sort of the chant. He, he hears the chant going through his mind here as he writes. Great. We confess is the mystery of godliness, not Artemis, but godliness. You are the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So look at the rest of 16. Some believe here um, this to be a hymn. As I said earlier, a known saying. 
that the Christians had already known. And Paul here is grabbing that because it's a useful summary of God's truth. And he says, I want you to uphold this. And here, you know, the ESV breaks down this saying into two, three line stanzas or so it seems. And again, this is here is a summary of the gospel. Just like Paul summarizes in 1 Timothy 1.17, he summarizes Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a brief tagline for the gospel. So basically is this right here. Now you can break it down in different ways. Some people break it down into three different couplets. I'm going with uh, two three-line stanzas. He says first, the, uh, the first three-line stanza, it, it refers to the work of Jesus. The second three-line stanza refers to the proclaimed work of Jesus. So the first one is the actual work of Jesus. The second is the proclamation of the work. Let's look at the first. He says he was manifested in the flesh. So here he's just referring to Christ's incarnation. Second Timothy 1, Paul uses the language of manifestation again, but there he talks about how God's grace is manifested in the appearance of Jesus Christ. That's basically all saying, referring to the same thing. It's referring to the, the manifestation of Christ, the incarnation. The question then is why was he manifested? Right? This is part of the truth that they were to uphold. Again, going back to 1 Timothy 1.17, it says God, or Jesus Christ, came into the world to save sinners. So his very mission was to enter into the world to save sinners. That's why he was manifested. And that's the truth that they are to lift high so that God would get the glory. So then you got to ask the question, well, well, how exactly do we become sinners? What, what necessitated Christ taking on flesh, traversing the universe to enter into our world? Well, it's because in the beginning, after God had created man to be in relationship with him, Man rebelled against their creator. God drew near to them, but man did not care. And so they basically shoved him to the side and pursued their own will and desire. They strived for really their own autonomy. And as they were going away, away from God and condemned to hell for their treason against God, God in his grace and mercy sends Christ Jesus to take on flesh to enter into our world to save sinners there. That's part of the truth that the, that the church is to uphold. This is the living God. The very God who took on flesh and walked amongst us and dwelt amongst us and even identified with sinners so that everyone who would believe on him would be saved. And so what he does as he saves sinners is he dies on the cross bearing the wrath that we deserved, bearing it for those who would repent and believe so that when they do, they would be forgiven of their sin and justified, made right with God, adopted into his family. That's that work there that the church is supposed to uphold. That's that work that was at stake of being lost by those false teachers. The central thing, the gospel, was being shifted and even being lost by those false teachers preaching unhelpful things. So here Paul says, look, that's what we preach. This is the mystery of godliness. It is great. Jesus Christ died, he was buried, but he didn't stay dead. It says there that he was vindicated by the Spirit. There's referring to his uh, resurrection. <clears throat> Romans 8.11 says that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So there he's being vindicated by, by, by the Spirit. And also he was seen by angels. We know that angels attended the Lord Jesus' birth. We know that the angels were present ministering to him, let's say, after he battled Satan in the desert. 
We know that there's an angel that appeared after his resurrection, sat on the tomb and let the people know where he was. Here he was seen by angels. The heavenly beings are witnesses to this great work. The second three-line stanza concerns the proclamation. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Acts tells this story, how the gospel was proclaimed from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, how the Jews and Gentiles both turned and believed. And then it says he was taken up in glory. Here chronologically it's different, but he ends on the reception that God had, that Jesus himself had as he went back up into heaven. After Christ accomplished everything that he set out to accomplish, as he charged the church to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, he was taken up and given the glory he had he had at the beginning with the Father. So here we have a beautiful hymn, a beautiful confession, highlighting the truth that the church is to lift high. It's a summary of the gospel message. That is what we are to uphold and further and propagate. It's really about a truth about a person. So that we, it helps us understand behavior, right? How are we to behave? Well, because his church is supposed to look like Jesus. Those who are born again, they have new spirits and they begin to walk in new ways. They walk after the Savior. And it's that truth, salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace, that we are to uphold. So if you're visiting with us today, let me ask you a question. What do you think the church is to uphold? What message should the church be devoted to? There's a lot of misconceptions about what the the message of salvation is. Some people might think the church preaches moral transformation. We believe that through the gospel, moral transformation is going to happen without a doubt. And that's a good thing. Um, But it isn't simply moral transformation. It's not do unto others as, as you would have them do unto you. Although that too is a good thing. Jesus commands that. The gospel is not, uh, we want you to live a good life, though, too, that will happen. Now, the good life, I'm not talking about a rich life or a trouble-free life, an always positive life. I'm talking about the good life that's marked by joy in Christ, even in the midst of suffering and poverty when it comes. Some people think that the church teaches uh, that we earn our salvation. That's the message of salvation. We work for it. But here, you know, as we just look at at the the mystery of godliness here, the very truth that he talks about says that the church is to uphold. It doesn't have to do with any of that. It doesn't have to do with merely a moral life. It doesn't have to do with do good to others merely. It's not get rich and die trying. It's about a person here. The The message of salvation is about a person and work of the savior that god the son who is worthy of all worship came to save sinners and that salvation can be found only through preaching this gospel right here which is why in some sense in in some ways you know you basically hear the same thing every week you hear the gospel every single week just from a different passage now we want to explain that passage to the fullest but at some point in time you ought to hear the gospel of jesus christ preached whether it's in the beginning or the end, even if we're talking about deacons, right? You should hear the gospel preached because it's that that saves. And it's that gospel that scripture points to in all of its words. So the question for you is, you know, if you've come to realize that here the the church is to uphold something that you are unfamiliar with, friend, know that the gospel is what I just said. 
And that salvation is made available to all who repent and believe. That Jesus is the person we want to lift up, not ourselves. And his work is the work that we want to exalt, not our own. And so in order to do that, we herald Christ crucified, who died on the cross for sins, so that we would freely receive forgiveness and mercy of God. So if this is you and this is new, repent and believe. That simple. Turn from your sins and believe on God who saves sinners. You know, if that gospel is not preached, casualties soon will be mounting very quickly. And that's exactly what Paul warns of, right? The church is a pillar and buttress of truth. What is that truth? It is the gospel, the mystery of godliness. And then if you look in chapter 4, he says very clearly, you start abandoning this truth, casualties start mounting. This is point number 3. He turns then to the church's opposition. The church's opposition. What happens when people start abandoning the truth? This is in 4 verses 1 and 5. Look there in verse one, it says, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and demons. There were already folks in this church who were devoting themselves to something entirely different than the mystery of godliness. Their false teaching probably went by the name of Christian. It probably had a Christ, but it was so far from Christ. I mean, you see there, Paul is clear that the spirit says that in later times, they're in the later times. That is, that that time before Christ is going to come, uh, a sign of the times that people would be abandoning their faith. They're in the later times. He says there um, that false teachers are going to come in. Spirits, uh, spiritual teachings that are bad and demonic. And here this is just echoing what Jesus says in Matthew 7, who says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Paul himself tells the Ephesian elders, these very elders of the church that, that were receiving this letter. He says there, when he stopped by in Acts 20, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So here, these folks are going to depart from the faith. There will be some in the church who depart from the faith. Meaning that they abandoned the very truths that they were supposed to lift high. Now, you should not think here that people are going to lose their salvation. That's not what they're talking about. Uh, this church does not teach that one can lose your salvation. Uh, keep in mind, these were wolves in sheep's clothing. But their very nature, they were still wolves. And of course, the way that they get into the fold is by looking like and even talking like the sheep. Jesus says that some people, even when he talks about the, the, the seed sown on those four different paths, uh, he says that they, some of them even receive the word, it says, with joy. But when they're tested or when trials come, they are revealed to have never been Christians to begin with. They never actually receive the word and go on and bear fruit ten, one hundredfold. The word there hasn't taken root in these false teachers or those who depart from the faith. It had never taken root. If you look at verse 1, did you notice where these teachings come from? It says deceitful spirits and demons. I wonder if you believe in the demonic. Here it's so clear. What stands behind false teaching and false teachers is in fact the demonic realm. 
And this is just keeping in step with scripture. I mean, Ephesians 6 says that our battle is not with flesh and blood, not against, uh, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when people depart from the faith and believe false teachers, here they're actually falling prey to the, to the demonic. I mean, so many folks, when they think about the demonic, they think about girls' heads turning around in circles, demon-possessed dolls, or even demon-possessed people. But here, I mean, thank God Paul is so clear. He says that God is so clear, and the evil spirits themselves are so clear. He says, look, you want to look for evil spirits in the church, you check for, number one, people's character. You check for, number two, you look at their teaching to see if it accords with godliness. So I'm not downplaying something like possessions that you see in sort of the highlights of God's redemptive history throughout time. That happens just as miracles do as well. I mean, in Acts chapter 20, right, is Ephesus. In chapter 19, there were demon possessions. But Acts chapter 20, when he gathers all the the Ephesian elders together, he doesn't say, look, I want you guys to excel at demon exorcisms. He doesn't say that at all in, in, uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 20. He doesn't say that in 1 Timothy. He doesn't say that in 2 Timothy. And yet those elders are supposed to minister amongst that group, even though there are demon possessions. He says, you want to look for the demonic in the church, you look at people's character. People who claim to be Christians, but yet they deny him by their works. And then he says, you look at people's teaching there. So look at character. These people are marked by insincerity and seared consciences so here these people aren't genuine i mean from the other pastoral epistles we know that these false teachers had false motives they took advantage of weak wills they were after money not the building up of the church and then they had seared consciences consciences that were branded by the devil so to speak that were hardened to the things of the faith thus the second timothy 3 says these false teachers oppose the truth and are corrupted in mind so you can tell, I mean, just by this character, right? I mean, the devil himself wants to derail Jesus's plan of salvation. And so he tempts him in the desert. The devil here continues to still work and he does so using people, false teachers who teach things that are off, that are misdirected. And eventually they lead the church away from what is center, namely the gospel. They're leading them away from these things, teaching about vain discussions, endless genealogies, Paul says. The gospel, unfortunately, is not heralded. So what is the content of their false teaching? For some reason, they were forbidding marriage and forbidding certain foods. So we're not entirely sure why they were forbidding these things, but we know that there were teachings around that general time of the first century and then more clearly on in the centuries that followed that said the stuff of the world, you know, the flesh was bad, but the spiritual was good. So maybe they were thinking that sex, you know, the fleshy stuff is bad. But the souls were good, therefore you shouldn't get married. Um, marriage is bad. Singleness is the way to, go, way to go. In relation to foods, they were forbidding certain foods for everyone. As in, maybe, like thus God says, you should not eat this type of food. And that's a mark of godliness. But he says there that both these things have the roots in the demonic and are false. Because, verse 4, for everything created by God is good. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So here in 4 and 5, this is, this is a correction to the false teachers. All these things were created by God, even the institution of marriage. 
given to us in Genesis chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that marriage is a gift from God. So why in the world would God all of a sudden say, oh no, marriage is not the way to go, remain single? 1 Corinthians 7 says marriage is a gift from God as is singleness. So both things are gifts from God. To one he's given singleness, to the other one he's given marriage. So therefore to forbid marriage is to reject the giver and reject the designer of marriage. Ungrateful to God who sustains all things. In relation to foods, Paul says that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So we can receive it with thanksgiving when we recognize that all things are created by God and those things are good. He's provided them to for us. So therefore, we need not reject it. He says that they are good in the sense that they are made holy with the word. So what that means is God declares and acts that all foods are equal. Go ahead, enjoy everything he tells Peter. Um, enjoy everything there. So that's what it means by made holy with the word. God says it's good. And therefore, we can thank God for his provision to us through prayer. That's what he means there about things are made holy through prayer. We thank the Lord for them. We receive them. We thank God through prayer for them. It's telling that uh, the teachings of demons and false teachers often have the appearance of godliness, isn't it? I mean, oftentimes the teachings of the demons and the demonic and Satan are cloaked in an appearance of godliness. Don't do these certain things. Instead, you should do these other things. I mean, their lives, right? Their lives, get this, was marked by some sort of genuine self-denial. They're denying themselves from marriage. They're denying themselves from certain foods. So they might appear to be godly or pious people, depending on how you define uh, piety. But their theology does really nothing. It doesn't affect anything. It leads to endless genealogies, vain discussions, vain quarrels. And time and time and time again, Paul's saying, stay away from these vain quarrels. They are, as 2 Timothy says, these people spend a lot of time learning, but never really arrive at knowledge. And in reality, they're so far away from what Paul calls the mystery of godliness. That is the gospel. They they have a spirituality of rules. A spirituality of rules. But God says, look, true spirituality is based on following a person. It's when Jesus himself gives his very people his own spirit so that they might be shaped more into his very own image. Is behavior important? Yes, absolutely. But only because it shows and reveals that we truly have been born again by the gospel through the power of his word. And that's exactly what Paul encourages Timothy to do. Look there in 4.13. Keep in mind, the false teachers were devoted to these false teachings, devoted to the teachings of demons and spirits. But what is the Christian supposed to be devoted to? What is the church supposed to be devoted to as they herald the gospel and uphold God's truth of the living God? 413, Paul says there, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. God had revealed himself through his word and all of that points to and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The church has a mission to be a pillar and buttress of God's truth, doing all things to promote the doctrines of the faith. Christ and his person and his work 
in saving us from our sins. That is our confession. And even in the face of spiritual opposition, we must continue to devote ourselves to the gospel. And in all the while, we do that looking for false teaching. You want to look for false teaching, you look at character and you look at teaching that does not accord with the gospel. You can also look at the fruits of living, which is something that Paul is going to get to. And you see this as he encourages Timothy in in distinction with those false teachers. He says, Timothy, look, you dedicate yourself to the scriptures and to holy living that accords with it. And we're going to spend uh, the next couple of weeks looking at just that. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, Lord, what a mission we have. And in your power, we recognize, or we recognize that in your power, we need to uphold that gospel. And in your power, we will uphold the gospel. So, Lord, we pray that we as a church would be filled with the Spirit. We know, Lord, that the Spirit always works to uplift Christ. So, Lord, we ask that we would be filled with your Spirit so that this church would uplift Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that where we are tempted to wander away from the gospel, Lord, that we would be reminded of the fact that we are a pillar and buttress of your truth. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that your truth is not static, but really it's truth about you, about the fact that you're the one who came and lived with us and died amongst us and was raised for us. And even now, you, though, you have, though you are not with us, you, by your spirit, have given your presence to us. So, Lord, we ask that we would be a church known for upholding your truth for the generations to come. Uh, as long as we have life and as long as this church is in existence and until you return. In your name we pray.